Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, John Glasser, former CIO of Partners Healthcare and now an executive advisor to Cerner Corporation. John, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Patty. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, John, you've been a CIO at one of the leading health systems in the country, and now you've been working with one of the big EHR uh, providers. So you must have a unique perspective on all the discussions that have gone on about the costs of EHR implementations, the burden on physicians, and of course, all the benefits of digitizing patient medical records. So can you talk to us a little bit about how your views on EHRs have been shaped by your experience? Yeah, sure enough, Patty. And I think, I mean, there's a couple of parts to the question you asked. Let me sort of start with the one of sort of the burden, which is one of the more pressing issues today, clinicians concerned about the usability systems. And when you look at it, you see a couple of things, you know, why? I mean, there's some legitimate concerns that people are raising. Say, well, sometimes the design isn't very good or can be made better. So it's not as intuitive as it needs to be. There's too many clicks. It takes too long, et cetera. Sometimes that's just because there's bad design. We can fix that. So there's also some ways, for example, using uh, a lot of advances in voice recognition and the ability of AI to empower a voice and so other ways of interacting with the system. So anyway, one topic is ongoing work, improving the design, using new technologies where possible. The second area that we could spend a lot more time or better at is, is changing the workflow. At times, you see a provider organizations, and I saw this at Partners, and I see this at Cerner, where they go, quote, just install it. You know, they go live, they turn it on, but they really didn't go through workflow changes or how best to distribute, who does what in the clinic, et cetera. So you can actually change a lot of burden by moving the work around to better suited people to do this, that, or the other. So that's uh, workflow can be improved a lot in some of these cases. The third is at times we ask the doctor to do stuff where we just kind of overwhelm them. I mean, documentation can be onerous. And CMS has been recently working on just reducing the documentation burden. Also, I used to think when I was at Partners, you know, it was called a tyranny of large numbers of good ideas. In other words, you sit in a committee and say, golly, we should have the docs ask about smoking. Yeah, that's a great idea. We should ask them to ask about whether you're safe at home. Yeah, that's a great idea. One by each, all these are great ideas, but you add them all up and they're just crushing uh, in terms of time. So part of it is sort of going through the record and thinning out. What do we really need the clinician to do here? And maybe sometimes we can use new techniques such as AI to sort of construct documentation that goes on here. And then the fourth thing I think sometimes is, is just it, it takes longer. So if I gave you, Patty, a prescription pad and said, write me a prescription, how long would that take you? Three seconds, you know, tops. I say, well, now I want you to sign on, pick the patient, pick the dose, pick the drug, all that other stuff. If I'm really good, how long would that take you? Well, 30 to 40 seconds. And so you take these tasks that happen all the time and you make them longer. And there's probably no way to really make them shorter. At least we don't know what that is. And the problem with that is the doctor says, well, what's in it for me? You know, why am I spending all this extra? How do I gain here? We don't have a very good answer for that. You know, we suck up time. We don't really deliver much to you. So I think the other part is just moving to value-based care where you really do get rewarded for quality. So that you'll say, all right, I'll spend the extra time because I can see what's in it for me. So anyway, there's a 
multifaceted approach to dealing with the usability issue. Unfortunately, none of them are simple. Uh, it's this progressive, you know, operating on lots of different fronts uh, they go through. So I think that's going to be part of it. I think there's value here. I mean, and sometimes the value you can express numerically, you know, there's you know, fewer errors or there is turnaround times or you know, things like that. But at times the value is really intangible. You say, well, I have better communication of the care team. And I'm sure we do. But how in the world do you measure communication and betterness or better decision making? Times you can measure that at times you can't. But that's true of IT in general. You know, yeah. what's the ROI of email? Beats me. So anyway, I think there is a, you know, what you see is we still have challenges in usability. We'll always have this complicated, multifaceted value proposition. But nonetheless, I expect all of this is very foundational. If you say we really want to change the healthcare system, get into value-based care, engage consumers, et cetera, it's hard to imagine that we can successfully do that based on a pile of paper. Yeah. So it's fair to say that it's all work in progress and uh, it's just going to get better over time, but we, you know, it's going to hurt a little bit while we get there. I think it's fair, Patty. There's no silver bullet here. Yeah. So one of the things that, of course, has been uh, criticism uh, against uh, you know, both technology vendors as well as uh, health systems, in all fairness, is the question of interoperability. Sure, you have experienced the data interoperability challenges acutely as a CIO of partners, but you also have seen it from the point of view of uh, a major electronic health record right. providers. How long do you think it's going to take before we get to a place which is similar to where, let's say, the banking sector is? Well, I think a couple of things. You know, one is, in, you know, recently did an article in Harvard Business Review on kind of what can we learn from banking. And, you know, ba- not only banking, but also travel. The travel uh, industry is pretty well advanced in, in interoperability. But you see a couple of things. One, in both industries, the interoperability is partial. And the reason it's not complete is twofold. You know, sometimes there are no real reasons for the industry to cooperate together. So, for example, in banking, you know, as you know, and I know, we can go anywhere and use our, you know, get access to our account and withdraw money. Sort of the ATM infrastructure shared by lots of different banks and uh, financial institutions all over the world. On the other hand, Patty, if you go into your account, say, I want to withdraw 20 bucks. And the, you know, Wells Fargo says, you don't have it. You only have 10. What it doesn't do is say, I'm going to reach into your Bank of America account, see if I can find 10 bucks, transfer it and serve it up to you. That interoperability doesn't exist. Why? Because the banks don't want it to exist because they view it as a competitive problem. You know, you might reach in and say, holy smokes, Patty's got a lot of money here. Maybe I'm going to entice him to join my bank, leave Bank of America, join Wells Fargo. You know, banks will have no interest in that. So sometimes it's incomplete because there's no rationale, business case for it to be present. The second is technology advances are always happening and interoperability lags. So, for example, you know, a lot of these, our kids do this, you know, use these micro payments where they'll sort of send a payment through their iPhone for 20 bucks or share of dinner together, et cetera. Well, between Mint and others, there's no interoperability here. Why? Because it's too new on lots of ways. So anyway, the point is you look at other issues and you see it's partial. That being said, you say, well, yeah, but they've been successful. They've done some stuff. And I say, sure. And how did, you know, what were the, you know, conditions that sort of led them to that? Well, there's three things. One of which is they really zero in on particular transactions. They don't try to connect everything to everything. They say, well, we're going to go after the ATM sharing of the infrastructure. Or in our case, in healthcare, we might say we're going to go after authorizations, you know, and referrals, et cetera. We're not going to try to connect everything with a very targeted transaction. Second, for those targeted transactions, there really is a business case. And sometimes in healthcare, we confuse use case with business case. Use case says, here's how it would work. doesn't mean anybody will pay for it to work, but here's how it would work. 
business cases, there's a real strategic, compelling, you know, revenue cost rash service rationale for this kind of stuff. So they're very good at that and getting agreement. The third is they have an industry body that pulls everything together. So in SWIFT or in banking, it's the SWIFT Alliance, 10,000 members. The banks get together and talk about how to settle up at the end of the day. You know, debits and, and credits deposited against each other. They need to streamline that so they know what your account is, what my account is the following morning. So SWIFT exists. In travel, the Open Travel Alliance exists to sort of help the travel guys. So, for example, if you go from here to there and you use two airlines in the process, your bags have to go from one airline to the other. Well, how does that happen? You know, it's not only an interoperability thing, but it's also process. You know, what does the baggage person do when they take the bags off your United flight and move it on to a American Airlines flight? So anyway, they have these industry industry groups that bring everybody together, sort through priorities, business cases, et cetera. We may have that in the recognized coordinating entity that ONC just stood up with a Sequoia project, et cetera. So I think, Patty, one is we got to sort of take the playbook uh, from those and to look at, you know, these three. And I guess the last comment I'll make, and this goes back to my days as CIO, you know, you'd go into the board meeting and say, you know, we got 50 different requests for IT projects, grand total 100 million bucks. And board says, yeah, but we don't have 100 million bucks. We're going to give you, you know, 30 million bucks. They say, well, okay, well, then of the 50, I can do 20. And so we have to prioritize, you know, just because of bandwidth and because of money, et cetera. Now, invariably, a lot of the interoperability stuff never made the cut. You know, it never was a, you know, a tough contender with stuff you want to do for nursing or improve the revenue cycle or to produce, you know, improve security on the infrastructure. So it wasn't as if there were bad people making data blocking decisions. It's just that the rationale was not as compelling as other rationales, et cetera. That may change. You know, as they do value-based care, and there's a greater reward for continuum. But right, it's a classic example of the business case. You know, in a particular instance of a health system, the business case often just wasn't strong enough to sort of rival effectively with other propositions. Yeah. So you mentioned the CMS and the coordinating entity that they announced. Uh, of course, the CMS and the ONC, they are kind of into the middle of this. Right? And they have yeah. been this for the last couple of years. So, but there's a lot of confusion, at least at least to me, and uh, maybe even to some of my listeners here. So, you know, we have the Fire API standards that the CMS and the ONC are working with the HL7 organization. Uh, there's the 21st Century Cures Act. There's something called TEFCA that's out there. How do my listeners unpack all this? You know, is there a simple way to unpack all this and understand what's going on at a high level? Oh, I think it's a tough thing, Patty. And you, you know, not only can you I mean you can read about golly, what is the recognized coordinator? What's really behind TEFCA? But some of the stuff's new, and so you don't really know well how effective will it be, you know, and will it get tuned or altered along the way here? And sometimes you go in and you say, golly, there's this bill in front of Congress, or that bill in front of Congress, and you know, a lot of bills get you know put on the put out there, but never make it anywhere. They never get out of committee. They never get voted on. And so there's this swirl of bills that come through. And even when a bill passes and it goes into committee and gets tuned in, so you say, golly, it's pretty fluid. No, that's for darn sure, et cetera. So I think it's really hard to do that. My best advice on that is one is if you're with a, you know, a large enough organization, a health system or a health plan or whatever, usually there's a government relations person, you know, a person whose job it is, is to be on top of what's going on in government. Now, sometimes it's IT stuff. If you're in the health system, they're probably also paying attention to Medicare rates or state-level activity on Medicaid and other things like that. They're paying attention to privacy laws, et cetera. So anyway, I, large, one of the things you do is you turn to say, well, geez, do I have such a person in my organization? And I'm going to then talk to him or her 
periodically about kind of what's going on, you know, on a regular basis, because it does change all the time. So that's one way to do it. The second way to do it is to, you know, you say, I'm going to go to uh, conferences, I'm going to go to a CHIME conference or a HIMSS conference or whatever. And, you know, there's usually a government discussion there, and I'm going to listen to that. Third way that people have is sometimes they, you know, sort of have, you know, sort of subscribe to or have relations with lobbyists or firms in the D.C. area whose job it is to keep tabs on all this kind of stuff. So you often see, you know, a health system with a connection to a set of uh, folks in D.C. whose job it is to monitor the rules and regulations uh, that are going on, et cetera. And then you can finally, you know, you join organizations such as the eHealth Initiative or the Electronic Health Record Association, you know, many of them are D.C. based. So you do pretty do a pretty darn good job of keeping on tap of what's going on here, et cetera. And then obviously you, Patty, and I'm sure you do this from time to time, introduce people to give an overview. But I think it's hard. And there's lots of different ways you can do it because there's sort of this cottage industry that has emerged that says it's too hard for people to really keep on tap of it. So I will be a lobbyist in D.C. or an association or whatever whose design it is to, you know, to make sure that you get the scoop on what's happening and how it's changing. Yeah, I read a recent uh, report, I think, that was done by one of the big consulting firms, Accenture, I think, which said that, uh, look, this information blocking rule that the CMS proposed uh, earlier in the year and was announced during HIMSS, actually, it's coming. Uh, it's coming down the pipe, yeah. maybe down the road. Well, health systems need to get prepared for that. And their survey seems to indicate that people are not prepared, are not aware or don't care, or any combination of the above. If so, John, just in light of your comments just now, is this even a big deal? Should health systems be doing something in anticipation of some of these things going into effect? Well, I, I think it's really hard for a health system to prepare for this because there's this language in there, Patty, and, and it's fuzzy language. So it says you, health system, have to make sure that patients can get their data with no you know, additional effort. So well, what does that mean? You know, or if you're a vendor that you can't, you know, this can't be egregious costing. Well, you know, I mean, I, there is obviously costs that are way out of line. But, you know, what point do you cross the line with your costing on this kind of stuff here? And that if, you know, someone says, hey, I want to have access to my data, you have to serve up everybody. So, yeah, but I can get overwhelmed by this thing. You know, aren't there ways that I can part it? So there's a lot of fuzziness in the language about what do you really mean? I think, you know, part of regulations is, you know, getting clarity. So, for example, Patty, I spent, you know, a year at ONC when meaningful use was coming out and, the, you know, the legislation said, we're going to give you money, you know, an incentive to adopt inter- for the meaningful use of interoperable electronic health records. And that's all it said. Say, well, what does meaningful use mean? Well, it took regulations to really say it means this. And we have all this very complicated set of certifications and this, that and the other that's come out of that. So you take all this data blocking stuff and that specificity that we now see around meaningful use doesn't exist yet. And, you know, they're still, you know, working on the rules to sort of, you know, create it. And I think that's going to be really complicated to go off and do that. So in a way, you know, you're a health system. You say, well, I can't prepare because I don't know specifically what you mean. You know, what do I tell my troops to do in the IT department or medical records department, et cetera? So I think all you can really do is do a couple of things. You know, one is to your point, you can pay attention and, you know, talk to your colleagues at, you know, consulting firms to say, you know, what's going on, this, that, or the other. The other is to make sure that you are a part of and aware of what, you know, your, you know, the sort of lobbying or professional societies are doing, such as what is the American Hospital Association doing about this? And they're working on it hard. You know, what is the AMA doing about this? The Medical Group Management Association. But anyway, organizations that represent providers 
who are trying to work with Congress to say, we got to get clarity here. And not only clarity, but clarity that's practical, not just clarity that's just going to be awful, you know, that we go through. So I think you can, you can do some basic stuff that goes through, but I think it's just really hard to get this until we get this clarity. And all you can really do, and it's worth doing, is to work with, you know, the organizations like the AHA to make sure that your opinions are known to them. Uh, and that you're hearing from them kind of where the conversations are in terms of creating the real rules and regulations that will give this all clarity. So watch and wait, basically. And, but also stay connected to, you know, the organizations that are in D.C. trying to work with CMS and ONC to get clarity. Yeah. So switching topics here a little. So today, the big buzz is all about digital health innovation, digital transformation, and you see a lot of announcements almost on a daily basis. The big tech yeah. under the act in a big way, the Microsofts and the Googles of the world. You know, we see a slew of partnerships that are being announced. You know, Cleveland Clinic just announced one with Amwell. And a yep. bunch of these kinds of partnerships are happening. And you have all these non-traditional players like Walgreens, Walmart, and uh, CVS. So... What do you make of all this? Where's the industry headed at a very high level in terms of its competitiveness, in terms of fundamental shift in primary care relationships and so on? Well, it's a fair and it's a fair question. And I think it's a remarkable time in this industry. So I, I think, you know, when you step back, I say, golly, what the industry is going through is this amazing change in business model. And business models basically, you know, says, here, I'm an organization. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. And you are going to be, you know, like what I do and how I do it so much you're going to pay me. And you're going to pay me enough to make a profit and maybe you may all become rich and all that other stuff. You know, an example is Uber. The business model is I'm going to get you from point A to point B and say, well, yeah, that's not all that unique. Walking does that. Biking does that, et cetera. But Uber says, yeah, but how I do it is really different. That is for sure. And it's pretty neat. So I'll use Uber, et cetera. So anyway, in healthcare. You know, we're going from the shift business model from volume to value-based care, from fragmented care to, you know, integrated care, from, you know, reactive sick care, you show up, we'll fix you, to proactive management of health, and from one that is really centered on the clinician to one that is more centered on the consumer or the patient. And that is a profound business model shift. Anytime you have a business model shift like that, and it can be induced by the technology like the web or mobile device or by, in our case, a lot of you know payment mechanisms go on. People see opportunity. So it's not surprising that you say, well, golly, tech giants and other organizations retail farm, you know, retail, the CVSs, the Walgreens, Walmarts, et cetera, saying, hey, we can do you know, a whole bunch of different kinds of things. These people stepping in and say, there's business model shift. There's opportunity when that happens. And I see how I you know, can leverage some of my strengths to go off and to do this kind of stuff here. So I think we're seeing this flood because of that, you know, going on here. Now, one of the things that's happening, Patty, is sort of the traditional boundaries between providers and health plans and between the pharmacies and the providers that, are, that these traditional boundaries are getting blurry, you know, really yeah. infusing, whether it's provider-sponsored health plans, son of a gun, or Optum has, has a massive, you know, uh, delivery arm, probably the largest delivery arm in the country, frankly. And, you, you know, as you've seen this, you know, in fact, I just got my flu shot at my local Walgreens this morning. And so they're increasingly getting into some basic types of care, let alone going on the Internet. And you can get prescriptions for ED drugs or, uh, you know, eye medicine, all kinds of stuff. You know, without ever seeing anybody in the course of stuff. So it's a really fluid time that's going to go on here. Now, how it will sort out, I'm not really sure. I mean, I see the tech giants, you know, the Microsofts, the Googles, the AWS of the world. And they say, well, they're really doing sort of two things here. One of which is providing infrastructure. 
And so Apple, for example, with HealthKit and ResearchKit is providing infrastructure for you to develop, you know, new and cool stuff, whether you're a Cerner or an Epic or whether you're a health system or whatever. And, you know, they benefit because they sell more iPhones and watches and stuff like that. So they're all doing infrastructure. Sometimes it's cloud. Sometimes it's Apple creating of kits, et cetera. And not only infrastructure of, you know, in case of hosting, but also tooling such as AI tools or voice recognition tools, you know, souped up Siri, things along those lines. So anyway, the tech giants are saying, I'm going to deliver infrastructure. So that as you guys go through this business model change, you can do all kinds of pretty cool stuff that's going to go on. The other part is if you look at particularly Google and Amazon in particular, so increasingly they want to surround you and I as consumers with all facets of our lives. So an Amazon says, if you order something, Patty, I want you to order 95, maybe 100% of everything you ever buy through Amazon. And it's not only books and, you know, electronics and this, that, and the other, but now it's groceries. And increasingly, it'll be durable medical equipment, your healthcare stuff. So I just want to surround you and make it really easy for you to order everything. Now, there's a lot of value for me in that, you know, and I can sell advertising, I can sell, you know, I could, you know, sort of charge money for, you know, a little bit of extra kicker for all these supplies, et cetera. But, but, and also I get to know you. And so you'll see this sort of personalization coming in here. Golly, people like you bought X. So I'm going to use all that knowledge and all fancy and, you know, sophisticated intelligence and great supply chain, et cetera, to surround you and be much more effective at making money off your daily activity. Google on the other hand, which is also trying to surround you, is trying to surround you based on searches that you do. So what is Patty interested in? Is he looking at vacations? Is he looking at whether he's got a chronic disease? What's he looking at? And I want to surround you and not only do this in search, uh, improve Dr. Google, for example, but also in your home. You know, it's to know, you know, a lot more about you in your home or to make it easier for you to use Prime. So I think above and beyond the infrastructure, and particularly in the case of Google and Amazon, is surround you and I in an ecosystem, which we actually benefit from and use a lot, such that they increasingly understand us. And healthcare becomes a critical adjunct to understanding hobbies and understanding financial status and understanding, you know, whether you have a big family or a little family and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, they're getting into healthcare just to round out their understanding of you and surround you with uh, support based on things you buy or questions that you ask. So what would all this mean to the, you know, the Cerners and Epics and Meditech, all those folks? I don't really know. You know, you see the Cerner AWS announcement. I suspect increasingly there will be this effort to, you know, put another layer on top of the HR, you know, a layer that's kind of like the population health business, but, you know, essentially it's a platform that sits on top, pulls in data from devices, pulls in data from claims engines and EHRs, and provides a series of additional services to you and me as individuals and the health systems, but also the life sciences company. So anyway, I think, Patty, it's going to be, you know, a remarkable time to see how yeah. all of this settles, settles out. Yeah, and this is obviously the whole competitive landscape is shifting, so the EHR vendors yeah. are kind of moving upstream and they're getting into more of the value-added uh, uh, yep. services world, and of course the big tech firms are trying to move into more of what, uh, I don't think they'll ever become EHR vendors, I could be wrong, but yeah. uh, the, needs, the emerging needs are all about analytics and user experience and so on and so forth. Now, one thing that I hear a lot is that the healthcare, the relationship between the healthcare consumer and her primary care physician is a unique one, which is built on trust. And, uh, you know, no matter what you may say about the brand value of an Amazon e-commerce platform or a Walmart or a Walgreens, there are certain things for which, you know, the trusted relationship between the uh, physician and uh, uh, the patient, that's kind of unbreakable in some ways. 
Now, of course, there are generational differences. The millennials have a whole different approach. They don't even have a PCP uh, in the first place. And, uh, you know, the boomers, on the other hand, are used to a certain way of uh, consuming healthcare. Does the shift in demographics uh, play a role? Is it going to play a role in how healthcare is going to be served and consumed in future? Well, yes and no, Patty. I, I think a couple things. One is you and I and everybody, I don't care whether you're 22 or 82, you know, have two different types of relationships with the healthcare system. One is what I call purely transactional. You know, like today, I went to get a flu shot. You know, I could, I did it at Walgreens. This is nearby, but it didn't matter to me whether it's CVS, you know, and I, you know, the nice lady who gave me the flu shot, I mean, I don't know who she is. I don't really care if I ever know who she is, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. It's a transaction. It's like buying groceries. You know, we want that. We want good groceries. We want to pay, you know, a good amount, but you know, I don't really care whether the person is checking me out and I ever have a personal relationship. So there's an aspect of healthcare, which is transactional. Pure and simple. And, and again, you could be 22 and it's transactional. You could be 82 and it's transactional. So there, I think, you know, the, you know, retail guys will do just fine because at the end of the day, we want good, convenient, high quality, you know, ex, you know, relatively inexpensive service. There's another category relationship, which I call agency, which is, well, this is different. You know, my relationship to you is based on trust, based on the fact that you have knowledge that I don't, that you have experience that I don't. And I never will, frankly. And I trust you will be smart and thoughtful, care about me, et cetera. Now, an agency relationship can exist with your doctor. You know, let's say if you have cancer or, you know, a weird or scary neurological disease. I, you know, I don't know. I trust you in agency. But also exists with a financial planner. Most of us, you know, golly, all these options beats me, Patty. Maybe you're all over this stuff, but beats me. You know, I trust the financial planner who says, listen, John, you want to retire? You want to send a kid to college? Here's what we got to do here. And if I had a complicated legal situation, I would trust an attorney. I don't know. Yeah. You help me. So anyway, the point is we have agency relationships with several different types of people, including our doctors, et cetera, that we will always have. Now, it's interesting to me, Patty. I have three daughters, you know, 36, 33, and 30. Um, and the 33-year-old and the 30-year-old are new moms. You know, within the last year, both had, you know, uh, grandkids. That's how I view them, et cetera. It's very clear to me that those, my daughters, value enormously the personal relationship with the pediatrician and value when they were pregnant, the personal relationship with their obstetrician. Now, they're millennials, but, you know, they want a healthy kid and they want a pregnancy without complications and this, that, or the other. So they might be millennials and they're willing to do certain, they're more comfortable with the technology than I am. But when it came to stuff that really mattered to them and when it came to stuff where they say, golly, you know, the stakes are high and there's an imbalance of knowledge here. I trust and need that trust. So anyway, I look at that and say, well, on one hand, millennials will try to do more of this. But on the other hand, all of us, you know, have, you know, retail transactions in healthcare. And my daughters, as you know, young as they are, still have the valued trust relationships as parents. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's very well put, actually. It's pretty nuanced. So uh, just to round out our discussion today, John, you, you talked about a bunch of the emerging technology. You talked about voice enablement. I think that's, that's fantastic scope for increasing productivity, reducing the burden on physicians just through voice enablement. And I think there's already progress being made uh, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about cloud, you know, how Cerner in particular is you know, driving relationships with AWS and all the other cloud vendors are getting it. I just want to talk very quickly about uh, AI. What do you think yeah. what do you make of AI's potential? Oh, I think, Patty, I think it's massive. And I think, you know, it's interesting. If you go back uh, over the history of business use of IT, you know, you say every decade, there's a class of technology, IT technology, which has changed the world. The world's different as a result of that. So in the 60s, it was the mainframe computer. In the 70s, it was the mini computer. In fact, you know, the Cerner Epics Meditech, the world were born 
off the mini computer. So in that, anyway, it was a 70s mini computer. In the 80s, it was a network personal computer. That's kind of when I came on the scene. Um, you know, it's so all of a sudden you could really do your own computing power and connect to printers and stuff and use Ethernet and all that stuff. In the 90s, it was the web. You know that that you know debuted, and so you know it's Amazon founded 1994, Google in 1998, and obviously the world's a different place because of the web. In the 2000s, it was the mobile device and you know high-speed wireless network. You know the iPhone debuted 2006. So you know also, and you look at golly, in an re- amazingly short period of time, 13 years, how much the world has changed because of the mobile device. And you say, well, in the current decade, what is it? It's AI. You know, the world will change because of that. Now, sometimes these changes play out over long periods of time, decades. For example, in this country, we're all sort of concerned about the web being used to influence elections. Well, shoot, you know, this is 20 years into this revolution. And now we're still learning about both the pros and the cons of the technology. So anyway, AI will play out for long periods of time. I do think at times people get sort of, uh, you know, sort of focused on, golly, will we remove the need for doctors? And, you know, and will cars really be driverless in all circumstances? And we get, you know, a little too ahead of ourselves. They say, but it's here now. Golly, you know, Siri, for example, Alexa have remarkable AI capabilities. My wife has a Volvo XC90. You couldn't crash that car if you wanted to. You know, the AI that keeps you from drifting in the lane and getting too close and parking and all this kind of other stuff. So there's AI everywhere across us. And, you know, AI, it seems, when I was at Siemens, the mach- you know, the logic would look at the machine and say the performance of part 62 is getting a little erratic here. I think it's going to fail in four hours. So let's, I'm going to dispatch a message to a technician to get out here with a new part 62 before it goes down. So I think, Patty, we will see profound change. It'll be multifaceted. It'll be all over the place. It's not like it'll be here, not there, et cetera. In our professional lives, our personal lives, et cetera, it will take decades to play out. But nonetheless, you know, you and I will have this conversation 20 years from now and we'll say, golly, look at the change that AI has happened. And I guess part of the cool thing is if it's really true that every decade something changes the world, what's next? That's a good question. It's usually hard to see the decade that is going to come, but it invariably comes. Well, John, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And uh, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure, Patty. And thanks for inviting me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.